Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, as the UK continues its 10-day period of national mourning for Queen Elizabeth, I look back at how she used to fly and tell you about the new King Charles III's first flight. Tom will finally get back onto the topic of Airbus A380s. Joe will tell us about United Airlines' second investment in EV toll technology, while I look at how Doha is slowly becoming a one-world mega-hub. Finally, I'll recap my one-on-one discussion with Etihad CFO. So now you know what's in the store, let's get on with the show. And Joe, you know, we've really got to start with this topic, but it, it's, it's a very sad one. It is. Um, you know, it's, uh, you can't have escaped the fact that we lost our beloved Queen um, mm. at the end of last week. Um, I think it's affected everybody all over the world. And, uh, you know, we're all very sad. It's a, it's a 10-day period of national mourning. We've got sad songs on the radio, sad programmes on the telly. Um, but it's no less than she deserved. So in honour of her Madge, I wanted to take a quick look back at how she used to fly um, and also talk about King Charles III's first flight as King of the UK. Um, so Elizabeth started her aviation history um, with her first flight as the Queen on an upgraded DC-4 known as the Argonaut. Uh, It was operated by BOAC and it actually took her as Princess Elizabeth down to Kenya for a tour um, where she was participating in place of King George as he was too unwell to travel. Unfortunately, George passed away while she was abroad, so she flew back to the UK on the same DC-4, a Queen. Um, One time, she actually flew on Columbine 3, Eisenhower's Air Force One and the only Lockheed VC-121E ever built. And she flew on a bunch of other aircraft, actually. Um, But some of the most notable ones was, of course, including Concorde, um, which she flew on for the first time in 1977. Uh, The first flight she ever had was on GBOAE, of course, flown by British Airways. And it was not only the Queen's first supersonic flight, but also the first time Concorde ever landed in Barbados. And actually, Concorde became quite a favourite of the Queen. She travelled to Kuwait in 1979, Barbados in 1987, and again in 2003, to the Middle East in 1984, and to the States in 1991, all on board the supersonic jet. But back in the 1950s, Qantas um, first hosted Queen Elizabeth, and this was on a Boeing 707. She went to the to the country for a tour. Um, back then, she had a special regal menu and a curtain with a crown insignia that separated the royal suite from the rest of the cabin. Um, but it was one of many commercial flights the Queen did take, um, particularly with Qantas whenever she went to Australia. Um, in fact, by the time the airline upgraded its fleet to the Boeing 747, she regularly flew the Queen down to Australia, very befitting of uh, our monarch. And in 1995, she again broke with tradition by taking a regular commercial flight. And this time it was down to New Zealand for her 10-day visit. So she flew from London via Los Angeles to Auckland on the flagship route of the time, which was NZ1 for Air New Zealand. And again, it was the Queen of the Skies, the Boeing 747-400. More recently, on March the 12th in 2006, she flew on a British Airways Boeing 777 
7200ER, which was registered GYMMO. Um, this ferried the Queen to Canberra after a stop in Singapore and then transported her on again to Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. One of the Queen's last royal trips was in October 2011 when she flew with the Duke of Edinburgh on another British Airways 777200ER, which was GYMMO. Uh, YMMP and the sister aircraft of GYMMO. It was actually the last Australian tour for the Queen and it was actually the last non-stop flight for British Airways from Perth to London. Um, of course, alongside all these commercial planes, she regularly used what um, was called at the time the Queen's Flight. When she ascended to the throne, it included um, lots of interesting old aircraft like the Avro York, the Vickers Viking, the de Havilland Heron, the de Havilland Devon, Hawker Sidley Andover and a DHC-1 Chipmunk. Um, today, the Queen's Flight looks very different, of course. It's much more modernised. Uh, it's got two Sikorsky S-76Cs, which I believe is some sort of helicopter thing. An Augusta Westland AW109SP, another one of those rotary things. Um, the, Of course, the Airbus A330 MRTT, which we lovingly call Boris Force One. Um, the Airbus A321-200 NEO, which has the same lovely patriotic paint scheme and is operated by Titan Airways. And a Dassault Falcon 900 LX. But of course, it's not the Queen's flight anymore because uh, on Friday it became the King's flight. Um, but the King's first flight, as king was not on board any of these aircraft because he flew from Aberdeen to London on board an Embraer. So he flew with his wife Camilla, who is now Queen Consort, from Aberdeen Airport at around 12.30 last Friday for the one-hour trip back to London. Um, and that was on board an Embraer Legacy registered ELEGC. Very cool registration for a legacy. Um, it's a luxury aircraft operated by Lux Aviation, a UK-based private jet charter service. Um, it's a 14-year-old aircraft and has previously flown for International Jet Club, Aerodynamics Malaga and Delos Engineering before being taken on by Lux Aviation in January 2017. So that was the King's first flight as our official King. Um, I would imagine that he'll be making good use of the King's flight, the other aircraft we talked about in the future, um, particularly the helicopters. I know that's a favourite of the royal family. Here endeth my, my tribute to the Queen. <laughs> yeah, I know he's no stranger to um, the one we called Boris Force One, which I guess is now Liz Force One. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was the first person to use that in uh, an official capacity internationally because I remember writing, it was about a year ago now that he um, flew to the new Berlin airport on it for um, the country, a German national day. So, That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We'll wait and see who he flies with. Mm, absolutely. Uh, because um, he's no stranger to British Airways either, actually. Of course. Um, I remember also writing, um, this is pre-COVID now, I think, that he visited the Cardiff manu uh, Maintenance Centre to learn about how the airline's being more uh, eco-friendly and sustainable, because I know that's a cause that was uh, close to his heart, although I was reading in the news that he's kind of got to be more impartial yeah. um, now as the king. So it was interesting to see what happens. It was a nice bookend, actually, because he actually opened that Cardiff facility back mm. in the 90s when it was first constructed um, and then returned sort of 20 years later to see how they were using it, which was really cool. Um, mm. But I'm sure he's going to be a super king. Um, I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that he's going to be on my money from now on. But mm. uh, we will well, see. Not for a while. Not for a while. It'll it takes take a long time, time to yeah. sort out. Um, <laughs> 
But yeah, talking um, talking about the king, um, and we talked about the queen and the queen of the skies and the king. Let's talk about an airplane that some have dubbed the king of the skies. Um, I've never heard that. I've heard it a few. I'm not a big fan of it personally, but it's just I thought it made a good segue. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, the you know I haven't spoken properly about the A380 for at least two or three podcast episodes now. So you know I thought our <laughs> listeners would have missed it so much that I had to talk about it today. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about some analysis that um, our colleague James had done because um, you know this October the aircraft will have been in commercial service for 15 years. Um, so one and a half decades, you know, it's, it's hard to believe because some of them have already been scrapped, um, especially those ones that first flew. Um, but he had a look at some scheduled data from Sirium and worked out what the shortest scheduled flights that the plane has um, ever done in its history are. So, you know, there's quite a few. Um, is um, the, the absolute shortest was um, Singapore Airlines from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur. Um, then, you know, when Air France was... Getting it into the groove, um, they had Paris Charles de Gaulle to London Heathrow. That was 216 miles, as uh, the first one was 184 miles. Um, more recently, Emirates has flown to Muscat, which is 217 miles. Um, also, they've flown the A380 to Doha and Bahrain, uh, 253 miles and 303 miles respectively. Um, British Airways is next on the list uh, with the London to Frankfurt that we saw so many times um, around the end of last year, started this year for passengers and cargo. Um, Emirates again clocks in with another Middle East um, flight. Dubai to Kuwait is 530 miles. Um, Seoul Incheon to Okasa Kansai with Asiana, 535 miles. Uh, number nine, you've got Emirates again. <laughs> if you can see a pattern here with Dubai to Riyadh in Saudi, um, and that's 543 miles. And the number 10 one is actually a bit of a wild card. It's China Southern. Um, they flew it from Beijing capital to Shanghai Pudong. So a domestic A380 flight, which clocked in at 681 miles. And, um, you know, I think that it's quite cool that that domestic flight is actually only number 10 behind. Mm. Um, behind nine um, international flights. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, as we said, um, you know, there's, there's been quite a few really short ones. Um, I believe the Singapore to Kuala Lumpur uh, was just um, sort of crew training when uh, Singapore Airlines brought it back um, at the end of uh, COVID. Or, I mean, it feels like COVID's kind of gone now, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it feels like it, but it's not. But yeah. Um, you know, like, I think... The one that clocks in as the sort of main the, the the main scheduled route that is the shortest is this Emirates from Dubai to Muscat. Mm. Um, that's the two hundred and seventeen miles one that was in uh, number three. Um, but you know that that's not one a route where they've just kind of been. Um, oh, we're, we're doing this to make the shortest um, route. They've actually been doing doing that as a regular scheduled uh, flight for quite a while. So, um, you know, the other ones, Air France to Heathrow crew training and the Singapore Airlines crew training, but this was an actual, you know, we're flying the A380 on this flight route. Um, according to James's research, the current shortest, would you want to have a guess at the current shortest? Um, oh, <laughs> You're never going to get it. That's why I want to see what you say. I don't know. Uh, no, I, I mean... I'll give you a clue. It's Emirates. 
Oh, God, where could they be flying? Oh, from Dubai World Central to the main Dubai airport. Uh, well, I guess that comes in as the shortest, but it's not <laughs> ever been a scheduled flight to my okay. knowledge. No, um, Actually, that was a bit of a, a red herring because the shortest flight um, between September and December 2022 is, um, is actually 1,049 miles. So it's longer than all uh, 10 of the ones that were in the top 10 that I read out before. Um, but that's an Emirates flight from Bangkok to Hong Kong. Oh, right. Um, so that's a little fifth freedom tack on, which is why, you know, there's um, the, 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 the little trick there. And actually, you know, um, it's tr actually right now it's the 777 flying that, that uh. route, but um, from October 1st, the A380 is going to go on there. Um, so, yeah. Exciting. Had to talk a little bit about A380. Um, don't worry. Do you feel there better is now? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to say don't worry to our listeners because I already have more A380 content coming for next week. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't want to go overboard this week. <laughs> That's good. Uh, much as I love hearing you talk about the A380. So you're talking about the biggest plane in the skies. I want to talk about some of the smallest aircraft that are coming to our skies probably in the next few years. Um, and this is about United Airlines and its investment in EV tolls. So you might remember back last year, United Airlines announced its intention to work with Archer Aviation and their maker, eVTOL. They placed an order at the time for 200 units and quite recently they paid a non-refundable deposit of I think it was like $10 million. So, you know, kind of firming up that partnership. But now United has signed for a second type of eVTOL, um, the Eve, which is from Eve Air Mobility, formerly a part of Embraer. It's not Embraer anymore. It used to be. They've now spun it off, although Embraer does still own about 90% of the shares, I think. So um, technically not Embraer, but yeah, it's the Embraer one. Um, so it has invested $15 million in the company um, alongside a conditional purchase agreement for the vehicle, which covers a total of 200 of the four-seat electric aircraft and includes options for 200 more. Um, United says it expects the first deliveries of EVE in 2026 um, and that the agreement also includes various collaborative partnership elements, such as studies on the development of the aircraft, use and application of the aircraft and of the general urban air mobility ecosystem. Um, so EVE has already had orders in for around 1,900 aircraft from 20 different customers. Um, so it's doing quite well in terms of the EV toll market and, and you know, who's getting the investment. Mm. So it's had. I mean, it's crazy. I think that there's just so many orders for this thing that doesn't fly <laughs> it doesn't yet. Exist. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the polar opposite of Boom because they also don't have their their product yet, and they really don't have many orders at all. I think it's only United and um, somebody else placed an order recently, didn't they? Uh, American Airlines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, they also um, have a commitment from Japan Airlines. Right. Uh, I forget who else, but I think definitely Virgin, those three. Virgin has Virgin some sort of about interest. It. Yeah, they make sense yeah. with the. Anyway, we digress, but they don't even have an engine yet. <laughs> Rolls Royce just pulled out of the project entirely, so they still don't Spoiler have an alert. engine. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> I didn't report on that today because I feel like I talk about Boom too much on the podcast. Mm. I wanted to talk about something different, but nope. it's all on, all on simple flying if you want to have a read. Um, so, some of Eve's most notable orders um, there was a 200 vehicle order from Global Crossing Airlines, Global X, mm. um, 40 Eve aircraft for Kenya Airways subsidiary Fahari Aviation, 100 of them for a Singaporean company. Company Ascent, which plans to provide urban air mobility in Asia Pacific. Um, so it is coming along. It's got some commitments. And also the prototype has recently completed experimental test flights in Rio. 
Chicago. And last hmm. month, the company announced its first simulation event in Chicago, which is designed to test out the practicalities of a UAM network in that city. Um, hmm. From what I hear, I think they're using um, helicopters to kind of you know, to simulate how it would be with an EV toll. But obviously it's not. It's a standard yeah, helicopter, I, this, but it shows how it would work. Thing, this is the thing with EV tolls that I'm just really not understanding yet. And uh, it just it just seems like such a step change will be needed to integrate them into the air traffic system. How do they mm. communicate with air traffic control? How do they stay out of the way of each other? But um, I'm, I'm really interested to see how they do it, but I just can't get my head around how they're going <laughs> to do it yet. Yeah, there's some really interesting projects going on. I think uh, when we were at um, the air show in Farnborough, I was having a chat with BT Drones, who are a British company that are developing kind of highways in the sky. For These are generally for unmanned aerial vehicles like drones so that they can um, go along, you know, they can, they can follow pathways that are defined in the sky that don't interact with commercial aviation, that mean that they're controlled and they don't, they're not going to crash into each other. Um, very interesting. And, you know, the applicability for people to be in those vehicles as EV tolls, I think, is uh, definitely there. Um, still a long way to go, though, as you say, uh, particularly if they want to fly into airports to connect on to commercial flights. That's a whole other can of worms that needs to be addressed. Um, but I think, you know, the interesting thing here is United's approach to futurism. You know, you, you mentioned Boom Supersonic. They've ordered 15 with options to take another 35. Um, but that's, you know, that and Eve and, and the Archer thing, that's not all. Because the airline also signed with a company called Breakthrough Energy Ventures in collaboration with Messer Airlines to invest in Hart Aerospace. And this is a company that's developing a 19-seater all-electric airplane that flies about 250 miles. Um, under this agreement, United placed an order for 100 of this plane, which is called the ES-19. Um, and Messer Airlines have an order of the same size as well. But that's not all, because United is also committing to hydrogen electric with a stake in Zero Avia which is the British-American company developing hydrogen fuel cell technology for aviation. Um, United has earmarked the purchase of up to 100 of its engines that it hopes to integrate into United Express aircraft in 2028. So what's this all about? I mean, is United just jumping on every bandwagon that rolls past? Um, clearly, it's keen to meet its sustainability targets, but it does feel a little bit like hedging its bets, you know, like um, we'll, we'll just be at the front of the queue for everything. And then the things that work, you know, we're, we're going to be the first to fly because we were the first to invest. So I don't know what you think, Tom, but it does feel a bit like spreading the risk, hedging the bets, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit, I'm still a bit, you know, like I don't know if it's all going to pay off. Um, you know, I hope obviously for the carriers involved that it does, but um, I reserve my judgment. I on... hope for the planet it does. You know, we, yeah. we do need these solutions. But the thing is, a lot of them seem to be dealing with a problem that doesn't yet exist. Mm. Like, you know, getting from your home to the airport. At the moment, yeah. people take trains or they drive cars. Cars are becoming electric and more sustainable or more fuel efficient. Mm. Um, but now well, we're going to start thing, flying you know. something from home mm. to the airport, which kind of is creating a whole new problem problem isn't it and yeah well, then you've got i mean we could go down a rabbit hole here but i mean you've got you've got to power it somehow with electricity and you know i'm just thinking of me getting from frankfurt to the airport you know it's a 15 minute train yeah it'll be 30 minutes for me soon um that seems like it could maybe be 
a bit more. But then, you know, where's this thing going to land? Um, you know, you've got to power it with electricity. We're already talking about how we can cut electricity in Germany because of the global situation right now. Is Yeah, that's it. If the electricity is not produced by 100% renewables, then it's not a sustainable vehicle anyway. You know, it's just using fossil fuels to generate electricity to use on a plane instead of yeah. in people's homes which uh, and i mean the train already is using electricity so yeah uh, and you you've, you've got you know that's that's not just going to the airport from one place you know that's going through with hundreds of people on it at any time so i well you know i think there's a lot a lot more questions, lot questions that to be answered, we could certainly. go down. Let's, yeah. let's have a special episode next week where we just talk about all of the questions that need <laughs> no, to be answered. Let's not, because nobody will tune in. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're not doing that next week, so don't skip it just because of that. Yeah. Um, well, Tom is joking. You know, um, no, I'm not joking about not doing it. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, I wanted to talk about a little bit about Royal Air Maroc and Doha because regular listeners of the podcast will remember two weeks ago we talked about Finnair launching flights from Copenhagen, Stockholm and uh, was it Oslo or um, Helsinki, sorry, yeah. um, to Doha um, to sort of tie in with the Qatar Airways network. Well, now uh, Royal Air Maroc is the second airline in two weeks to it's relaunching flights to Doha, not launching new ones. But um, I thought it was quite funny because um, they're now a One World member. And it's, it's when you, you know, the, the, what I found really interesting is like the Finnair press release came from Finnair. The um, Royal Air Maroc press release came from Royal Air Maroc, but both of them had a comment from Akbar El Baker in them. Um, <laughs> he likes to get yeah. involved with these things, doesn't he? Yeah, it does. Well, it kind of seems as though he's um, he's kind of creating a one-world hub in Doha, which you know it makes sense um, to uh, to do so. But um, you know, let's just talk about the route first. So um, Royal Air Maroc's revealed that it's going to relaunch flights to Doha today, as we're recording this on Monday, September twelfth, and this follows a two and a half year absence on the route and um, like most routes that have been gone for two and a half years that was suspended because of covid um, naturally they're using the 787 on this route they're going to use their dash nines for the flight which carries 302 passengers with 26 business class seats um, it's it's pretty much a night flight for those on board um, or uh, evening flight afternoon flight night flight so um at216 departs casablanca at 245 in the afternoon local and it will arrive in doha at 15 minutes past midnight the next day so that's a seven and a half hour flight and the return at217 departs doha at 215 so two hours later uh arrives in casablanca nice and early at 810 um seven hour 55 minute flight so um, you know, it's, it's quite a late flight on the return, um, and I, I never want to arrive somewhere at like midnight, really, if I can avoid it, because then you've kind of got to get to a hotel or get where you're going still, and um, yeah, all of this. But yeah, let's speak about the One World Hub aspect of this, because uh, as I said, it's the second One World airline to launch uh, or relaunch uh, flights to Doha in in the space of two weeks. Um, Al Baker, as I mentioned, commented, he said, we're delighted to expand our cooperation with the resumption of flights to Doha and apart from our partner, Royal Air Maroc, a One World member. Doha is firmly positioned as a premier One World hub, bringing together more partner airlines than ever before, enabling passengers to enjoy global connectivity to more than 150 destinations on Qatar Airways network. Bear in mind that's from a Royal Air Maroc press release. <laughs> um, 
So um, it's, it's interesting as well because um, Royal Air Morocco specifically said by launching the flights now they'll be able to um, kind of not just connect Morocco to Doha um, for the World Cup, but also through their connecting flights, connect uh, a large part of Africa to Doha for the mm, World Cup. Of course, yeah. Um, but you know what I felt because um, Finnair obviously is waiting till November, December to launch the flights. So um, you know, then they, I don't think words. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that football is the main target for Finnair. Okay. Um, but, you know, what was interesting is I decided that, you know, I'd wait until the World Cup's over and look at some data from January at which One World Airlines are flying to Doha. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, you've got Qatar Airways, 6,500-plus flights planned in that month to depart Doha. Mm-hmm. Um, Finnair will have its free daily departures, one to each of the Scandinavian capitals that I mentioned earlier. Um, Malaysia Airlines has two daily Doha departures scheduled for January. Um, Royal Jordanian has one to three Doha departures a day, depending on the day of the week. Uh, American Airlines, British Airways, Royal Emirat and Sri Lankan all have one daily Doha departure. Um, so, you know, that's eight out of the 13 One World members airlines that are flying there. Hmm. Um, the ones that aren't flying there are Alaska Airlines, Clearly. obviously, um, <laughs> Cafe Pacific, Iberia, Japan Airlines and Qantas. Um, Qantas I was the at least only... three of those for not flying yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, Cafe Pacific, you kind of understand because they're not really flying most places at the moment, I feel. Yeah. Um, Qantas, it was the one that stood out for me as that was a bit of a surprise um, there. Yeah, um, maybe they'll think of going little, there soon. Yeah, interesting tidbit, though not yet officially part of the alliance. Oman Air, as we know, is uh, next in line to join. And they... Um, are planning free daily services from um, in January. Um, S7, who's currently suspended from the airlines, doesn't fly to Doha. Uh, the alliance doesn't fly to Doha. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Actually, you know, I only looked at Doha, but I'm thinking now there could be some merit to looking into um, which are the biggest One World hubs. You know, mm. which which carriers does Heathrow have? Which carriers does JFK have? Um, mm-hmm. And all of this. Um, so, I might actually speak to um, James, our root analyst, about that and see if we can have some content for readers next week or yeah. this week and may- maybe do the other alliances as well just to be impartial and uh, you know all encompassing mm. because yeah. we're not just a one world alliance podcast yeah. we I are mean, all just, alliances I was thinking about one world but um, <laughs> actually I think that could be three separate articles Oh, there you go. That's got James yeah. his uh, assignments for the week. <laughs> yeah, so James, when you listen to this, uh, give me a message. <laughs> no. Okay, so I wanted to wrap up our session today talking about another Middle East airline, um, not Qatar, but Etihad, um, mm. because by the time this goes out, hopefully a lot of our listeners will have tuned in and listened to me chatting with Adam Bukadida, Etihad's Chief Financial Officer, um, on our webinar, which airs on Tuesday. Um, so it was a great time to talk to him. You know, Etihad just turned its first profit in seven years. Um, It reported for the first half of the year $300 million or thereabouts in core operating performance and also Mm. close to $700 million in EBITDA performance. Don't ask me what what does that mean. (laughs) No, please don't. (laughs) It sounds really good. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortisation. But I still don't really understand. what does that mean in practice? (laughs) I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's some financial people who can uh, fill 
you in, but please Google it. Um, yeah. But the, the, the headline is they turned a profit. They've been trying to do this for a really long time. Um, I, I talked to him to find out what the main influences were that enabled the airline to be- finally become profitable after all that time. And of course, the main factor is, of course, the transformation program that we've talked about lots in the past. I think we chatted to Tony Douglas about it last mm. year. They've been working on this for around four and a half years. Um, and it focuses on cutting the costs while maintaining exemplary service for guests. So clearly the impact of those activities is starting to show. But there was a bunch of other stuff going on as well that was very influential on Etihad's good first half of the year. So mm. they recorded $1.25 billion in passenger revenue thanks to uh, the incredibly strong travel demand, which is being seen out of Abu Dhabi right now. They flew mm. over 4 million passengers in the first half of the year. Um, you know, and they, as I'll say later on, all the cabins are full, not just economy, but premium as well, you know, up, up the front in their business class. They're seeing lots of people traveling, which is great. Cargo performance did help. That's been something Etihad has relied on through the pandemic. But actually, yeah. they, they've had to reduce the amount of cargo flown because more aircraft are being used for people, which is great. Well, that's good. Yes, of course it is. Um, so overall, there was a 19% reduction in cargo capacity due to bringing more aircraft back into passenger service. But still, it contributed over 800 million to the balance sheet, which is good. Um, ancillary and other other revenues were strong. Um, I found this interesting. It was particularly Etihad Guest, its loyalty program, which has been incredibly profitable for Etihad in the last few months. In fact, they saw record numbers of new acquisitions during June, and the program now has around 8 million members. So that's really good news. Mm, um, and yeah. of course, it wasn't the easiest start to the year. Operating costs for Etihad were up 24%, but this was pretty much entirely down to the increase in the cost of fuel right now. And this is something all airlines are struggling with. You know, they, they're mm. managing to pass on a bit of that inflation with into the ticket price, but of course, they can't just lump that all on the passenger. Um, so they're having to offset it to some degree. Etihad is doing this by tightening its belt on other costs such as administration and expenses at the airline. Um, so I they've guess managed a to really good time to have your fuel hedged. Exactly, exactly. But even that will run out eventually. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't doesn't protect airlines forever. Mm. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, they'd seen a rebound in travel across all their cabins. Um, and interesting was business is starting to come back. It has been more slowly than leisure, but it's returning slowly. They're seeing some of their corporate clients coming back and traveling with them again. But when the corporates aren't filling up those premium cabin, cabins, it's the leisure travelers. And I think that's lovely that people are, you know, they haven't had a holiday for a couple of years and they're thinking, you know, let's make this a really good one um, mm. and they're paying for the upgrade into the premium cabins and getting to experience that really top-notch service which is great mm. um, so is the transformation program complete you know tony talked to us last year and said that they'd use the pandemic to kind of press it forward to accelerate the timeline and um, they always said it was going to be five years so are we done now well adam's response was that it's never really stops you know change is always going to happen the first part about putting all the kind of blocks in place is done, but then the challenge remains to sustain it. So, you know, the transformation is ongoing, I think, is the message he's going to tell
tell me. Um, mm. In terms of the fleet, uh, Etihad still remains non-committal about when and if the airline will look to grow. Obviously, there are still a few aircraft on order. It's flying about 70 at the moment, I think. Um, mm. But any further expansion over and above that will be entirely financially driven. So the fleet size right now is appropriate for where Etihad is right now. But they, mm. they're constantly evaluating and looking at adding more planes um, when it makes sense to do so. We talked a little bit about the Dreamliner delivery pause. I asked if it had created oper operational challenges. He said it hadn't, but had they had more Dreamliners, could they have filled them? Yes, they could. Um, hmm. If they'd had more A350s, could they have filled them? Yes, they could. So there well, seems... I mean, they've had A350s sitting around for three years, though, haven't <laughs> well, they? they have. so... Yeah, they have. But I think, you know, now's the time they really want to start stepping on the gas and getting those hmm. planes in. Um, we talked a bit about Heathrow as well. So Etihad recently moved back to T4. So it hasn't had quite the same level of problems that a lot of airlines flying out of T2 did, um, particularly sort of in the start of the summer season. Um, but it is still a slot controlled airport, which was the reason that Etihad used to fly in the Airbus A380, uh, obviously to maximise the number of passengers it could scoop up on a limited mm. number of slots. Um, so I had to ask, you know, and I think you'd have killed me if I didn't, Tom, will the A380 ever come back? Um, and in Adam's exact words, he said, the answer is, who knows? I haven't said today that we're not going to, and I'm not going to say that we're going to. You know, he, he spoke just, about... Go yeah, on. I just wonder how long they can drag this, we're not going to, we're not not going to, but we might, out, you know, at some point... <laughs> A decision has to be made. Are we going to leave it in the desert in Spain and um, yeah. in Tarbes, or are we going to bring it back? You know, yeah. I just wonder how long how long we can go without making this decision. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, he did and for say my that... sake, please make it yes <laughs> now. <laughs> and me, and me, definitely. You know, he did say that it had to be a business case for bringing it mm. back, not an emotional one. You know, so if the factors were signalling that it was needed, you know, high load factors, high demand, which he says that they're already seeing so mm. I wonder if it's on the cards you know he did mention that of course the Etihad A380 is one of the best in the world in his opinion in terms well, of mean, passenger experience I would agree it's very good and it's the it only depends, one that has that yeah. the residence product on board which exactly is the, I think if you're in the residence and it definitely is the best but yeah <laughs> in terms of like economy I don't think there's really much that separates all of the A380 operators no exactly um but you know in terms of the mm. residence it's the only thing in the sky like it and I'd love mm. to see it coming back. Private um, jets as well. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> so I will repeat Adam's words in his conclusion. He said, if it makes financial sense to do so, then we'd for sure look at it. But at mm. the moment, we're not planning to do so. What we are doing and continue to do is review the business case on a very frequent basis. Mm. So that's not a yes, not a no, but again, a maybe. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Tom. Let's revisit this in three months. <laughs> <laughs> So um, if you didn't manage to catch the webinar with Adam and you want to hear more from Etihad CFO about what they've been up to, you can tune in on our YouTube channel. It's in the webinars um, playlist. Please yep. do have a look. There we go. And I think that's probably all we've got time for today. I think um, that's more than we've got time for today. <laughs> we've talked a <laughs> Thank lot. Thank you for listening so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed our Wittering On and we welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.